Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thielen Arduzzi, an editor at the TLS, and I'm joined, as you might expect, and indeed hope, by Lucy Dallas. Hello, Lucy. Hello. Thank you for the hope. <laughs> that was a nice touch. <laughs> well, I'm, t- I'm, sure, I'm sure that's what people are thinking. So um, anyway, tell us, what's new, Lucy? Um, I'm actually not going to tell you what's new. I'm going to tell you about something very old but that uh, is oh. new to me, as it were, because we've got a... And next week we can do something blue and then something <laughs> borrowed. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's, there was a, a, a freelance piece in this week's TLS by A.E. Stallings, uh, and it's about a performance of um, The Persians by Aeschylus, which I'm sure we're all very familiar with. Um, but the thing that I didn't know about is that on the island of Salamis... It's about the Battle of Salamis. The Persians is about the Battle of Salamis. An extraordinary thing is it was written, I think, and performed eight years after the actual battle. So lots of the people who watched the performance were in it. And Aeschylus was in it, which I didn't know either. Um, Anyway, but apparently on the island of Salamis, there is an olive tree that's about two and a half thousand years old. It's called the Olive Tree of Orsa, uh, which is just named after uh, a lady who was associated with it in the medieval times. But that olive tree, the thinking is, will have witnessed the Battle of Salamis. Um, wow. Which, yeah. Sorry, that was genuine. That sounded really sarcastic, but that's incredible. I know, isn't that amazing? And, um, which, and, and, and it apparently had three... Aeschylus was in the battle, and Sophocles was uh, 16 at the time when they won and led a victory hymn to it, and Euripides was being born as the battle happened. So that's the sort of thing that ties those three together. So for your next pub quiz, um, <laughs> when they say, which battle links three uh, tragedians? Or where can you see a tree that's witnessed the Battle of Salamis? Uh, now you know what to say. We've got the answer ready. There you go. Well, thank you. I, I ask you for something new and you tell me about a very, 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 very old tree. Sorry. Um, thank you for that, Lucy. <laughs> uh, it seems like a while since we've heard from listeners, which may be something to do with our having floated off for a month or more. Uh, well, they're probably all diligently working, but we're back now and we would love to hear what people are reading and consuming, culturally speaking, uh, especially as we might be heading into another lockdown. So I'm sure we're all compiling lists for what we're going to do in the next one. Uh, find me on Twitter at Thea underscore Linarbuzzi or please email me. Uh, Lucy, what have you been enjoying recently apart from this story of the incredibly old olive tree? Uh, books, you mean reading. Books, you're talking about books. Or, or watching anything really. Well, um, the book I'm reading at the minute is uh, Short Life in a Strange World by Toby Ferris, which is about Bruegel, the old Bruegel, Peter Bruegel. There's millions of Bruegels. You only like the old things. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is a bit like that today, isn't it? <laughs> That's not all I do. Um, but he and he... He, he, he goes round the world trying to look at all the Bruegels and he sort of tells you what's happening in his life um, at the same time. And it's jolly good. I highly recommend it. And thanks to my deficient memory, I can't remember whether we, the review has appeared or it will appear. I can't tell the difference between the present and the past and the future. But there, <laughs> the, there is or, or will be or has been a review in the Times Literary <laughs> Supplement. 
perfectly concrete. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, I quite like Rowan Mateson's idea. I don't know if you've seen... Um, it's another piece from this week's paper. Uh, she she basically... Her idea was to reread, and she did this during the last lockdown, she reread all of P.D. James's novels, which if you I think if you add them up, so if you add up the Dalgleish and the Grey novels, and then there are a few others, three or four others, uh, it comes to about 20, I think, which would keep you busy. That's a big old, that's a big old task for you, yeah. It is. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've mostly been reading about fascist Italy, so I think I'll probably save, save talking about that for another show. Um, mm. Because coming up on this week's show... After the global pandemic silenced performances, Italy's determination to reinvent live opera bears beautiful fruit. Larry Wolf reports from the Verdi Festival in Parma. And 100 years ago, Agatha Christie's first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Style, was published. 65 more novels would follow, over the course of which we, the reading public, would form a clear impression of what Christie was and how her golden age detective novels work. But what if received opinion is wrong? Christie's biographer, Laura Thompson, joins us on the line now to explain. Hi, Thea. How nice to meet you, sort of. Nice to meet you. Yeah, sort of. It's as close as we're going to get for a while, I think. Yeah, yeah. You're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, this is a lovely distraction, I must say. Thank you for your wonderful, wonderful words about this No, not at all. Thank you for writing. It's lovely. I had a few people write to me um, from the office, you know, in the various processes of uh, stages of it being read. Um, people dropping me a line to say, what a lovely piece. So, Well, yes, it's, yeah. you know, I do like writing about her, as um, which is lucky. That certainly comes across. <laughs> um, so it was a lovely, really lovely gig. Yeah, fabulous. Well, so, I mean, as you know, obviously, this is a podcast. It's definitely not live radio. And, you know, if you want to stop at any point or uh, cough or break into song, um, that's all fine. Yeah, I could well do that. The only thing would be um, a barking dog. Oh, same here. Same here. They'll set each other off, maybe. Yeah, okay, good. What have you got? What dog? Uh, nobody knows really. He's a, he, well, he's, he's supposed to be a mongrel, but then someone told us he might be a Picardy sheepdog, uh, which wow. is this really rare northern French dog. He's completely nuts. He's absolutely oh, mental. How but he's got all sorts of terrible... No, not really lovely. <laughs> Right, back to Agatha Christie, um, and we'll, we'll, do, we'll do the dogs another time. So we started discussing this piece many months back. Um, I told you we were going to have a special focus on crime fiction in this issue, and, and we do, uh, and I asked you if you had any ideas you wanted to take for a walk. You immediately suggested this one uh, of Christie as chronicler of change. Um, it feels like an, an argument you've been wanting to make for a while. Yeah, that's about right. It's... Um... It's a wonderful opportunity to to do it uh, for you. And that image of her, which is, it is impregnable. I mean, images kind of are. It doesn't matter how much you deconstruct them. They still have a force of their own. And in a way, that's part of her, that's part of her enduring appeal. I think that the image, the grey-haired matron, the, 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 I like the brooch. That's absolutely so. Uh, And, you know, seated at an eternal tea table, with arsenic in the cucumber sandwiches or whatever. That is a a powerful, powerful image that I think she herself used, being a very, very private person. I think the image was a really good shield for her. Um, But nevertheless, she wrote from 1920, this is the centenary of uh, Mysterious Variety Styles, up to the, well, she died in early 76, So inevitably, she's going to cover the century, and she did so in a way that is, it's incidental. You couldn't say she was intending to do it, but in a way that makes it all the more intriguing. And of course, she's a creature of her time and class. Nevertheless, when I read all the books in order, which was work for the biography that I wrote, and you could really call that work, which was great, um, (laughs) you, you know, certain things did strike me forcibly. And P.D. James, to whom I had the absolute pleasure of speaking for this book, she refers to the same thing herself in that brilliant kind of autobiography she wrote, that the detective story is an incidental chronicler of its time. Probably not so well now, but now also a lot of them sort of, you know, refer back to the golden age. But obviously you you also have contemporary crime fiction that's a, a brilliant 
chronicler of the times in which we live. But um, P.D. James also, um, I mean, yes, a big admirer of Christie and a kind of, uh, well, a scholar as well as a participant in the jo- in the genre, but she said, um, you know, in Christie, we are not dealing with reality. Mm. I don't quite agree with her about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's reality versus truth, I suppose. When when I spoke to her, she, she used the word Christie land, and that is absolutely true. And she deconstructed um, the body in the library in a way that was completely hilarious, the, the ludicrous nature of the plot. Um, and in the end said, oh, but two of those murders were completely unnecessary because why didn't they just put a pillow over the old bloke's face? And that's absolutely true. It's, it's, it, it was very funny and absolutely spot on. Um, but it's the truth of that book is, is, is absolutely brilliant. The old boy falls for a young girl and the family is absolutely incensed about it and they try to hide it because they're all well-bred. But, but one of them's plotting murder. And there's something in you that recognises that. You know, her villages are a very good example. They are an artistic construct. But I grew up in a village and there's a lot of it that rings true to me. Um, and also the village is the brilliant uh, thread whereby she does trace change um, because the village is her kind of default setting, if you like, um, because it's a microcosm of human nature which is completely true I think uh, really I do well before we head into the village because I mean as you say that's a really really rich uh, area to explore you start your 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 essay and and this is how we know we're going to be following a, a different and a very interesting line from the get-go you start your essay um, with her novel from 1965 Bertram's Hotel so we sort of start in the in the foyer of, of Bertram's Hotel. Now, you say it's, it's not one of the classic Christie novels. So tell us what attracts you to this one. How does it help you kind of expound your thesis? Well, it's, I suddenly thought, oh, my God, this is genius. This is genius. This is her... I'm not saying she's doing this deliberately. Part of the beauty of her is that although she is so structured and so, um, you know, controlled as a writer, you do always get the feeling that there's something instinctive about it. And um, I think with Bertram's Hotel, kind of the same thing. It, it, it starts almost like it's 1965 and Harold Wilson is prime minister, but who cares? Let's all go and have cucumber sandwiches in this wonderful hotel, which is like this dream, dream of Edwardian England. Miss um, Marple has gone back there in a spirit of à la recherche, She's, she's gone back. She used to go there as a girl. They're all the same things that happened to Agatha herself. She used to go to the Army and Navy, and she'd go to a matinee and a four-wheeler with a pound of coffee creams. That's all what Agatha did. So she's putting her memories into Miss Marple, and she's gone back to this glorious hotel in a side street in Mayfair. It's kind of, people say, Flemings, um, where the world has, has stopped. The clock has stopped, and the lounge is full of minor aristocrats, aristocracy and archdeacons and blah 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 and they're all being served here in a way that recreates the glories to Agatha of the days when you had servants and they had a status of their own um it was a hierarchy in which everyone had a, a, a real respect and status that's how she saw it and of course the whole thing is um virtual reality Bertram's hotel is a crime ring it's a front for a crime. I'm sorry I'm giving away an ending here. I'm not giving away the whole thing. <laughs> Spoiler from 1965. Yeah, sorry. Um, but it's, 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 it's not giving away who did the murder, so I'm going to get out of it like that. But it, um, it's a, it, it, the whole thing is a, is a construct. You think you're back in the days of the Golden Age detective story, and oh, isn't that lovely and all that. She's playing a kind of giant joke on the reader, whereby she says, my God, did you really think this? When, when I say, oh, how marvellous to be here, not a bit of plastic in the place, and a real chambermaid. Uh, the real chambermaid's an out-of-work actress, and the, half the archdeacons and what have you are um, criminals dressed up for the part. It's, it's such a coup, I think, and it kind of says... It's 1965, I'm 75 years old, and I have moved with the times more than you give me credit for. It, it feels a bit like um, if, a, if, let's say, an, a, an American postmodernist writer had done that in 1965, 
it would have been hailed as a brilliant, do you know what I mean? A brilliant fourth wall breaking revolutionary move. But as you say, it's almost as though she was hiding in plain sight and nobody noticed this very audacious thing. That's exactly, and that's a brilliant, I wish I'd written that. That's absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant. And I think completely true and and she's even when her reputation was was low which was kind of the last quarter of the 20th century and I started researching it in 2003 and people sort of was still pretty snooty about her she she always had a following among French intellectuals and you could kind of understand that because there is this subtext says that the real murder is somebody else she's she's writing on that two-level thing um, but I still think you would have to give her credit for creating these things that are, uh, they have an, an enduring value, um, which is why she's still up and running in a way that people like other, other golden age writers are not. But I mean, in a way, um, you were sort of alluding to it there, um, the simplicity of, of her books, it's both... It's kind of both the problem and the success of them, isn't it? It's both, it's for better and for worse. Yes, I, I really do think that. Um, oh, look, I'm her, I'm a fan, you know. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been a fan since I was 10 or whatever. And, and it's, it's, I did always think, you know, reading them, age 10 or whatever, um, there's the, the, a mesmeric quality to them. You know, there's a kind of, you know, my brother and I used to recite that gramophone record from And Then There Were None at Each Other, it, it, which is ridiculous in one way, but in another way is a tribute to the, 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 the kind of incantatory power of her incredibly simple style. Um, but of course, you can easily say simplistic. Well, it's, it's, it's quite hard to imagine um, an author for whom it's more true that Someone, one person can look at it and, and see uh, a negative, while another person looks at the exact same thing and sees a positive. I mean, I'm thinking of, we don't think of, of Agatha Christie as being a, a details person uh, so much. There's a lot of sketching and skimming, uh, you know, and some people will see this as, um, as just, you know, further evidence that she's, she's just not that good. You know, she's a bit of a hack. Um, whereas you you turn it so that in fact this is a this is a very conscious choice and the the, the notebooks support this um, based on her deep understanding of of human psychology. She's she's you know even her publisher Alan Alan Lane um, said he said how the hell does she do it you know we we really don't know she herself couldn't explain how she wrote the books and yet her writing notebooks are yes they are assiduous in working out the plot, but even they sort of work out the plot in almost scenic um, fashion. She was, although I don't rate her plays at all, she was an absolute theatre nut from a very young age. And I think there is a kind of um, scenic, you know, it must be very frustrating to people who adapt them because actually you could just put them straight on the screen and I think they would work incredibly well because that is how naturally she wrote, I think. And I was just going to say that in terms of the spareness of it, the, uh, and in a way the, um, the output, the only person I can think of who, who was even faintly comparable is Simenon. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. And even more um, productive, yes. Yes, yeah. Who's also beloved by French intellectuals. Is well, French so? intellectuals love crime fiction, just... Full stop, yeah. really, don't they? Oh, do they? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a real, it's a real, it's a real thing. Um, I don't know why. Perhaps the, the the genre seems to be, and Lucy, correct me if I'm wrong, but the genre seems to be much more, um, you know, a, not so much appreciated but elevated than it than it is here. Here, it's kind of like, oh, well, it's genre fiction, that kind of out slightly outdated term that people like to use disparagingly. Uh, whereas in France, that's never really been the case. No, no, there's a lot of respect. A lot of respect for them, and I don't think there's any. There's no shame, I think, to be seen reading them. And and obviously, there's just some, and there still are right now that, that are just very, very good. And also, probably, and um, this is being flippant, but if you're a French intellectual, you probably would like a bit of plot, wouldn't you? After a bit? <laughs> <laughs> some, some stuff happening, maybe. something to hold on to. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's very fun. <laughs> can I ask you? Can I ask you a question about um, Endless Night from 1967? Because you you mentioned that, and it seems uh, I haven't read it, and it's not one that I I recall hearing very much about. It seems you call it um, a last classic, and but it seems sort of like an outlier in the oeuvre in some in some ways. What what do you think she's sort of setting out to do in that one? Endless Night is a, is, is a first-person narrative, and it's a young man. He's sexy. He's, she, you know, says working class. He's got nothing. He's got no money. He's just got a huge amount of sex appeal and a kind of ambition that is nebulous um, but overweening. And she, she writes this book from his point of view, his desire to, 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 to get something out of life without really earning it which is, I suppose, um, by her standards, growing up in this kind of Christian, late Victorian, um, is, a, is a, a, a sensibility that is uh, inimical to her. But she inhabits it absolutely brilliantly, and it does feel a very fresh contemporary book now. Um, you know, that culture of, well, if you like, the kind of celebrity culture or something, or something for nothing or whatever. Um, she's not condemnatory at all. She's very non-judgmental as a writer. I do find that, despite her stern moral code. Uh, That sounds like a contradiction, but I I feel both those things. And she just inhabits this young man in a first-person narration. And she, to my mind, there's very few false notes in it. She writes about him thinking about sex. It's 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 kind of comes easily. and she said, you know, people were amazed that I'd done it. Well, I didn't find it difficult at all. I listened to people and I just sort of did it. I don't know how disingenuous that is. But it is an outlier. Uh, it's a kind of character study, but I think very, very successful. And um, probably one of her best books, actually. Um, well, it sounds to me um, like that's the one that I'm going to read. <laughs> I, um, I, I think I, 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 read, I read some Christie when I was... Uh, like you, young, and that's something that people say all the time. A colleague um, who I was talking to the other day about um, about this and about your piece uh, said, "Oh gosh, I, I pretty much devoured them all in the summer between school and university." Um, but so you know, so much time has passed since I did first read Christie that I think I was probably one of the people that you uh, would you know would take against for seeing it the other way, seeing it from the other side, and not and not appreciating the the other side, the other side that you've given. So, yes, I'm going to read that one. It sounds, it sounds incredible. Please let me know what you think. I do absolutely get what you... Because sometimes... I mean, I've read them so many times, it's ridiculous. Um, and they've got me through, you know, feeling ill and bereavement and all sorts of things. Um, but, you know, sometimes I read them and I think, oh, come on, this is just flat, plain, clever, but what? Why are you... And then another time I'll read them and... Just the feeling of the end coming. It's a little bit like, um, I say in the book, adult fairy tales. You know, that beautiful sense of resolution that you get when you're a kid and you read a fairy tale. Um, There is a sort of magic about that on some fundamental, um, you know, just the beauty of narrative that we all feel uh, that, that she reduces to very, very simple elements. And there is something quite exciting about that. But... Again, you know, I don't want to say that she's better than um, Muriel Spark or whatever. And, and in one way, it is pure genre, and she never strays outside the genre in the way that other, you know, P.D. James writes these kind of Dickensian, weighty sort of... She, she is pure genre, which is what fascinates me all the more, because all the, all the mystery of over and above the mystery of what she's writing about, the mystery of why she is so enduring and fascinating, is within and hidden. Um, I can't think of anyone quite like her, although you say Simonon, that's, an, that's interesting. That's an interesting comparison, I think. But um, she is certainly unlike any other detective of, of her contemporaries, for example. She couldn't be more unlike, really, I don't think. Well, Laura Thompson, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we'll have to leave it there. Um, I will report back on my reading. Um, Lucy, did you did you read any of them? I mean, I, I'm guessing you did. For me, they've sort of all blurred into one. And as I said, it was so long ago. 
I kind of, I don't really remember which ones I enjoyed. I think one of them was a Poirot one, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, in fact. Um, that's the one where Poirot's kind of coming out of retirement and he's fussing about with pumpkins <laughs> or courgettes or something at the beginning. Sounds good. <laughs> Marrows. Marrows. Oh, Laura, thank God you're still there to correct us. Sorry, I'm going now. Um, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really, it was lovely thank to you. talk thank about Thank you, Laura. It. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Uh, Lucy, are you more likely to pick up an Agatha Christie now? Than well, because you, you said were pumpkins. I'm not completely obsessed with pumpkins. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, about six weeks ago, a book arrived in the office. Well, I say a book, but obviously there are hundreds and hundreds every week. But this one book was by Graham Joyner, and its title was Monster, Myth, or Lost Marsupial. It was a new edition, I should point out. And the reason I do point it out is not because, as far as titles go, this is on another level, nor because I think it would make a brilliant alternative game along the line of animal, vegetable or mineral, but because the book, actually a study of the Australian gorilla covering history and science and language, reminded me why the TLS is a place like no other. Every week we see countless examples of this kind of specialism and the sheer dedication to corners of research and thought otherwise neglected. You know, I mean, you know what I mean, don't you, Lucy? I do know what you mean. And I remember very imperfectly, I'm afraid, um, which I think we've mentioned before on the podcast, a, t- a title of a, it was about f- the philosophy of spheres. Does that ring a bell? Oh, bubbles. Bubbles. Maybe it was bubbles. And it we all, bubbles. we didn't know what to make of it. And then it turned out it was extremely important book. Extremely important work of philosophy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, we we get things that you didn't know were so important and so intricate, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yesterday I came across um, a book by Ian Way, and it's called Thinking Thinking About Animals in 13th Century Paris. And it's just the, the double specificity of that, the 13th century and Paris. And it basically looks at how theologians in that very specific time and very specific place conceived of the line between humans and animals and all the rest, you know, how they pondered the matter of human exceptionalism. And you just think, if I had all the time in the world and a brain slightly bigger than the one I actually have, um, I know I would get all sorts of useful, enriching stuff from that. So I guess what I'm working my way towards suggesting, Lucy, is that every now and again, we pluck out some of these titles that, that cross our desks and we offer them up to listeners. You know, the obscure, the surprising, the labour of love. I mean, they don't, they don't all have to be, they, they don't have to be any of those things in particular. They can just be interesting. Um, 
So I would like to tell you about my choice for this week. And it's not really fair of me to do this because I didn't tell you we were going to do this. So you I, won't I have a choice was, to bring to no, the party. I'm still on 13th century <laughs> Paris. I'm racing to keep up, but go on. Well, I have that. I brought that home with me so I can bring it in next time and I can pass that one over to you because what I'm going to be reading is um, the Valancourt books of, uh, Book of World Horror Stories. It's edited by James D. Jenkins and Ryan uh, Cagle. Um, and so Valancourt is it's this small indie press based in Richmond, uh, Virginia. And they've been specialising since 2005 in these rare, kind of forgotten, out-of-print uh, works of fiction. They have a particular thing um, about the supernatural, which this book obviously continues. And so what we get here is 20-odd short horror, story, horror stories drawn from five continents and 13 languages, none of them uh, English, I'm pleased to say. So there's one from Denmark, Romania, um, Ivory Coast, Peru, Senegal, and uh, you know, and so on. Um, and it just sounds like it will be just the thing, as you know, as I'm sorry to say, the, the days are growing shorter, and Halloween is approaching. The summer is definitely over. So, so yes, I put it to you, Lucy. A semi, a semi regular feature, perhaps. Yes, it's a very good idea. That book sounds brilliant, though a bit scary if you are faint of heart like me. Um, no, that's a very good idea. You beat me because I haven't been into the office, so I can't I can't see any of the books. But I will, uh, I will, and I think it's um, we can come up with books, and we could also see if our listeners have come have come across any uh, wonderful titles. Um, I'm going to counter you back just very briefly with a, a new word. That I learned. In fact, this is all a bit meta because um, it's uh, a word I got from the box of a bit of kit um, for doing the podcasting. Balado diffusion. Do you Ooh. ever hear that? I don't think I have. Say well, it again. Balado diffusion. And as far as I can tell, it's Quebecois for podcasting. Isn't that brilliant? Wow. Québécois. That's brilliant. Well, one of the horror well, stories is from Canadian Quebec as well. French, is it? Yeah, because it's a different sort of French, isn't it, than than Parisian French? And um, I guess it's because you're diffusing while you're on a ballade. I guess that's my best guess. So if you if we want to sound fancy, we can say, tune into our ballade de diffusion. Mm, it has a has a has a lovely musical quality to it. It does. It's a it's a lovely musical word, and we are actually um, going to move on to actual music. Um, because, as we all remember, Italy was one of the countries hardest hit by coronavirus earlier this year. It has, of course, been gradually getting back on its feet since then, and in the past few weeks has seen some beginnings of a return to live music and even opera. This, as you may imagine, is a big deal in Italy, and our contributor, Larry Wolf, a professor at New York University, where he's a lifelong devotee of the Met Opera, is currently working in Florence, so he went along to the Verdi Festival in Parma, which went ahead this year, and there he saw live opera again after a drought of at least six months, and he wrote us a beautiful piece about it. Hi, Lucy. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. You too. Uh, hi, and uh, Thea here as well. I'm just I'm tagging along. The lovely piece you've written. Thank you so much. It's made me miss Italy even more, which is where I'm uh, from. <laughs> uh, where are you from in Italy? Uh, Varese, uh, so sort of near Milan in the Lake mm -hmm. District. How wonderful, how beautiful. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, in terms of um, pronunciation for this piece, everyone, I'm just, I'm very much aware that I'm very much at the back. <laughs> so I'm but sorry can, for my English Italian straight away. You, well, no, but you can, I'm sure you can play it either way and you can either go for Verdi or Verdi and you'd either, either way you'd be right, whichever way you want to play your E. Depending, I, you can just pretend you, you learnt in, in Tuscany or, or in Milan. Mine's and we've got my American speech factored into it as well. Perfect. So we're covering all bases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got everything covered. Um, can you tell us what it was like for you being able to witness live opera in the flesh again after all that time? I'll tell you, it was amazing. Um, I hadn't quite realized how much I had missed it, though I knew I was missing it a lot, um, until I actually heard live sounds again and it, it was astonishing as as i'm sure you know there's no opera in new york right now and i'm in awe of the italians for taking this on i mean they're not the only ones in europe who are doing it but it's a very very challenging enterprise and it's a mark of how much opera means in italy that they're doing it now and can you tell us what um tell us about the show the particular show that you saw at the uh, at the verdi festival so the opening night performance was Macbeth. It was um, performed 
outdoors as a concert. Usually the Verdi Festival would begin in the Teatro Reggio in Parma, but they, um, adapting to the current conditions, they moved the performance outdoors. It was performed in the Parco Ducale, and um, it was actually a somewhat unique performance of Macbeth since it was Macbeth performed as it was in precisely as it was performed for the first time in its 1865 revision. That is, it was performed in French because the premiere was in Paris. And you, you mentioned as well that, um, you know, Macbeth is very much a drama of the night. So seeing it at night outside must have brought a whole other kind of element to it. Totally did. Um, dramatically, of course, Macbeth is, you know, as dark as, as it could possibly be. But musically also, I actually felt like I was uh, appreciating better what Verdi was trying to do with some of the um, eerie, uncanny, unusual um, instrumental effects that he uses in Macbeth. Hearing them as night music, and maybe especially being attuned to the, to the sounds of live instrumentation um, at, a, at a moment when I was pretty starved for it, um, made the night air the pretty perfect environment for um, taking in the score as well as the drama. Um, and in terms of um, what you said, so originally the opera is, uh, Verdi writes it in Italian. It's based obviously on a Jacobean English play set in old Scotland. And this one's sung in a French translation. Does this, does this mishmash of cultures and eras, did it cohere successfully? It was, it was amazingly coherent. Um, as, just as you say, there was a first version of Macbeth created by Verdi when he was young in 1847 for Florence, where I am right now. Um, it was then revised in 1865 when Verdi was, you know, fully mature, the Verdi of the 1860s. And what's extraordinary is that Verdi never heard the French. He did the revision using an Italian libretto and then turned it over to the French team to do a French translation. And, um, it's exceptionally beautiful. This is part of a whole revolution in Verdi performance that's taken place over the last generation in which we've begun to appreciate that a certain part of Verdi's work was meant to be heard in French and that other parts of it are close enough to the spirit of French grand opera to sound meaningfully right in French, and that's absolutely true of Macbeth. But I mean, think about Don Carlos and um, Vespri Siciliani, which we now almost know better as Le Vespri Siciliani. Um, yes, I hadn't thought about it that way, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't, I wasn't very familiar with the French version. But I think, I think I can be forgiven because I don't think that many people are. Um, it's interesting that you heard it in French. You heard something that Verdi never heard. And that I think nobody else has ever heard since Paris in 1865. Um, That's incredible. That's like opening a, an, a you know a really really old cask of of, of wine or, or port or something. Yeah, or treasure. Yeah, tasting it for the first time after hundreds of years. Thea, it was so beautiful in French. I mean, just to say the obvious things right there is an elegance to the way that the French verse was cast and it changed a little bit the um, sound of the um, vocal music. Um, but there was also a, I mean, the French would always want to classicize Shakespeare, right? Even if they were working with the drama. And one felt that a little bit here as well, but it was a little bit of a classicization of a Verdi treatment of Shakespeare. Very, very beautiful. Um and you were saying in your piece in general that um, this is presumably part of the reason that the festival went ahead, that, that you, you feel the opera is indispensable in Italy and no composer is more indispensable than Verdi. Why, why do you think he holds such a totemic place? So Verdi's career in the 19th century um, takes place against the background of the creation of modern Italy. Right, he becomes active in the 1840s at the at the moment when the Italian Risorgimento, that is to say, the um, the Italian national movement looking towards a modern United Italian state, um, is most active. Verdi is closely associated with that movement. Um, his 
um, the um, famous chorus of the Hebrews from Nabucco um, becomes almost from the moment it's created in 1842, a kind of Italian national anthem and maintains that status to this day. But he's so closely associated with nation making. And I don't mean in a chauvinist or strident way. I mean, in a thoughtful, reflective, sometimes traumatized way, as in the case of the um, chorus from Nabucco, that he remains really important for um, Italians thinking about who they are and what it means for Italians to constitute a nation. And that beyond the fact that he's one of the great musical geniuses of, of European music and that his works are creations of astonishing beauty. Yeah, I mean, on a much more prosaic note, I mean, he was, he was a member of the first parliament. So he's, he's so very much a, a part of the very fabric of, of modern Italy. And I think that's true at the time when he's working, when he's doing the revision of Macbeth, right, which takes place mm. after the making of Italy, right, after modern Italy has been created at the, at the beginning of the 1860s. And um, I think it's interesting that he's interested in going back to Macbeth, which sort of turns on the question of the, um, sur sur the subversion and salvation of the state. Yes, and he's well. He's very much interested in, I suppose, matters of the state. But I, I see what you say about Vapensiero. It also it's very it's better tune than any national anthem I've ever heard. But it, but it's not jingoistic. It's not flag waving. It's not chess beating. It's not kill the, our enemies. It's it's a kind. Of, it's just it's sort of love, love and longing for the homeland. Do you think that's right? Actually, Thea, I should ask you as well if that's right. Well, I suppose it's in it's it's true that it's it's more in line with you know you think nationalism now and you think oh god you know terrible all of um, all of the modern ways in which we see it develop, uh, the 20th century ways. But when you think back to the 19th century, the movement was about, it was about, yes, unification, the creation of a, of a country, uh, the freedom of a country, the freedom of it, you know, getting rid of the Austrians who had, who had, um, who had been kind of occupying it for so long. So yeah, Vapensiero, you know, O mia patria si bella perduta, it's mournful um, as well as hopeful. I think. It sounds nicer when you say it than when I say it, I have to say. <laughs> but the spirit of longing that, that, that I think you very correctly cite, Lucy, is also, I think, related to the fact that the Italians are a far-flung diasporic people. Um, think mm. of the Italian-American community in my country, Absolutely. the Anglo-Italian country uh, community in England. The idea of longing for a remote homeland is something that I think is, you know, very meaningful to... Um, to Italians from one end of the boot to another, but also globally. Mm -hmm. This just in parenthesis is exactly what I am completely immersed in at the moment. So it could not be what you say could not be more felt by me right now. <laughs> okay. The longing, the longing for the longing for Italy. The longing for the Blue Mountains. <laughs> oh, yes. sorry. For the lakes. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to drag you down from the sublime to the very practical. Sorry, I'm sorry about this. Um, because I want to just ask Larry how it works in terms of logistics, in terms of attending uh, a concert performance, an opera. Did it feel very different? We know that choral singing is one of the things that has been, you know, almost completely stopped under all restrictions. How did the how did the festival get around these these problems? So. Um... It, it, Italy is a country, uh, you won't be surprised to hear, where um, the restrictions surrounding public health are pretty clearly articulated. And it's been a struggle to um, meet the, the regulations um, and still put on an opera performance. The chorus sang um, from very far behind the orchestra. I'm told that the chorus members were 25 meters from the conductor. It was hard to measure the distance from where I was sitting. Um, so um, the chorus was at a distance from the orchestra and from the conductor. Um, remember some of the orchestra instruments, the brass and the winds are awfully spitty as well. So the orchestra was distanced from one another. The rehearsals, I'm told, um, filled, were, they used the Teatro Reggio for rehearsals with nobody else in it, um, putting the chorus um, 
where the where the where the spectators would ordinarily be at the parterre level and up in the balconies with the orchestra on the stage, um, and they tested everyone every week. Um, it's what we're doing with our university program right now, testing everyone every week. This is going to be more doable once there's a really fast test, but yes. it's about constant testing, maintaining distance. And then when the actual performance comes around, it's about fever checks and masks. You also say in your piece that this this right now is very sadly also the season of requiems for the victims of coronavirus. Now that music has come back, then obviously music is one of the ways in which you can express grief uh, for what's happened. Um, and the best known requiem in Italy is also Verdi's. Um, I mean, his requiem is notable, I would say, for its... It's remarkable for for its drama and its long, wonderful lines. And it's, I was trying to think of a better word for this, and I haven't, I'm afraid. It's operaticness. Um, but you saw, uh, I believe you saw Zubin Mehta conduct one that felt rather different, didn't you? Um, it was a very gentle requiem. Um, I said in the piece that I wrote for you that it was a, not a Tuscaninian requiem. Um, my dad heard Tuscanini conduct to, um of this conduct the requiem in Carnegie Hall, you know, circa 1950. And I've heard the, I've heard the recordings. I know what the really um, thunderous dramatic requiem sounds like. And I've heard that this was a gentler requiem, a requiem of consolation um, and a very moving requiem. And one that was actually right for the occasion. Um, And um, the singers, um, followed Meta closely in, in you know, the spirit of the Requiem that he was offering. And I think there will be other Requiems that will be in different spirits. Other people are conducting the Requiem in this season, right? Abado is conducting one in Parma. Shai famously did one in, in, in Milan, in the Duomo, at the beginning of this month. Well, I mean, it does seem like one of the fitting ways to kick off the season, doesn't it? Um, it's, it's, an, it's the infancy, I suppose, of... of um, covid era opera but we've already seen a lot of last minute cast changes and and some of the very big stars testing positive recently haven't we how complicated do you think it's going to be to to keep keep it going i think that the people who are probably at greatest risk are the people who are up on stage singing or in the chorus singing and um, they are taking chances for the things that are most important in their lives which is their you know clearly their their artistic vocations but um i mentioned in the piece that there was just a fateful performance of verdi's don carlo in moscow at the bolshoi in which um First, it was announced that the basso, um, Abdrazakov, who sang, who was singing Sing with Philip, was COVID positive. And then it was revealed that Anna Netrebko, probably the most famous soprano in the world, was mm. in the hospital with COVID. She was singing the role of Elisabetta in that performance. Both of those um, infections immediately triggered um, cast withdrawals and cast changes around the rest of the opera world as as you as you would expect so i wonder if a weird if a weird unpredictable silver lining is that we'll discover all sorts of talent that you know we didn't we didn't get to see otherwise <laughs> just by a twist of fate i think that's right but i also think and it's part of what i meant what i meant to suggest in the piece and in talking with you is that one of the silver linings, and it has a lot of pathos to it, is that we're going to discover how much this means to us. That is mm. to say, losing live opera, losing live, cla- live classical music is going to make us realize how important it actually is to us, if it is important to us individually. Um, we, I mean, it's the, you, there's, there are small beginnings in the UK. Um, there, there are some attempts to try and um, maybe emulate what cinema and comedy have done. There's a, a ENO have a drive-in event called um, Drive-In Live. They did a La Boheme at Alexandra Palace. Um, and people have also brought opera and classical music to festivals before as well. Can you see this kind of change, this kind of thing working for opera in the future? Um, I think that the idea of using alternative spaces for opera is something that people have been 
um, playing with for a while now. And I think it's something that will be really useful for us going forward over the course of the next couple of years. The idea that opera doesn't only have to happen in the opera house, that's going to be really meaningful and is really going to make a difference. But eventually, I think we probably have to get back to the opera house. The question is what it will take medically for us to get there. Um, well, as I said in the introduction, I know that you're, uh, and as you mentioned, you're a, you're a lifelong um, Met Opera goer, so I, I let's very much hope that you can get there um, in the not too distant future. Um, Larry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Thea. Larry Wolf there talking to us from Florence. Uh, that is all we have time for this week. Our thanks to Larry Wolf and Laura Thompson. Do pick up a copy of this week's issue, as well as the pieces we've discussed here. There's Rowan Mateson on P.D. James. Christopher Andrew sheds new light on old spies, including the fifth man of the Cambridge spy circle. Yvonne Ivan Yu goes in search of the books that are disappearing as China ramps up the repression in Hong Kong. And we have reviews of the latest fiction, including the novel by Marilyn Robinson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, now brought to you by Wireless Studios and produced by Ben Mitchell. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can bear it, please leave us a review. It helps us to keep doing it, which may sound a bit dramatic, uh, but it also helps other people to find out about the show. Find out more about the TLS on our website, the-tls.co.uk. Until next time, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.